Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. So one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. The call to worship is by Terry Pratchett from A Hat Full of Sky. There's always a story. It's all stories, really. The sun coming up every day is a story. Everything's got a story in it. Change the story. Change the world. This congregation has a mission statement. And it guides us as we make decisions about our programming, about our building about all the ways that we move into the future. We say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. The meditation reading is from Patrick Rothfuss, The Name of the Wind. Chronicler frowned. Is that the one where the king sells his crown to an orphan boy? Bast nodded. And the boy becomes a better king than the original. The goose girl dresses like a countess and everyone is stunned by her grace and charm. He hesitated, struggling to find the words he wanted. You see, there's a fundamental connection between seeming and being. Every fae child knows this, but you mortals never seem to see. We understand how dangerous a mask can be. We all become what we pretend to be. Chronicler relaxed a bit, sensing familiar ground. That's basic psychology. You dress a beggar in fine clothes. People treat him like a noble, and he lives up to their expectations. That's only the smallest piece of it, Bast said. The truth is deeper than that. It's, Bast floundered for a moment. It's like everyone tells a story about themselves inside their own head, always, all the time. That story makes you what you are. We build ourselves out of that story. Now's the time in our service when we join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation where we speak or listen to God as we understand God, or where we listen to our inner wisdom, or where we just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. In this congregation, as we enter into the silence, I always say that uh, noises from tiny children and the sounds of life count as part of the silence. Let us now enter into the wise silence together.
We talk a lot about story in this congregation. We talk about how things happen to you and then you make up a story in your mind about what just happened and the story you made up shapes your experience of what just happened. And uh, I've given examples like, you know, you say bye to somebody in the parking lot after church and they just turn with no expression on their face and get in their car and you you go, oh my goodness, um, did I insult that person? I'm looking back over what I did. They have no no right to be insulted by anything. What are they thinking of being? Anyway, you go into this whole, one of my clients used to call it skull cinema. And, um, <laughs> and really it was just you were backlit, they didn't see you, or they're, they're going blind and they're too vain to wear their glasses, or, you know, there's, there are other stories. And I've, I've told you about my friend Pat, who whenever anybody cuts him off in traffic, he'll say, oh, bless his heart, he probably just got out of the hospital. So, um, we tell stories about all kinds of people and why they're doing what they do, especially babies. You know, you get, you go into a place and there's this toddler who's just crying and you think if you don't have any children, you think, why isn't that parent doing something about that terrible crying? I mean, what did they do to that baby? Stop pinching that baby. And, um, if you have children or ever have had or been around them, you think, oh, there are like 15,000 reasons why that toddler could be crying like that. And my daughter-in-law posted on her Instagram when her, my granddaughter was little, just an inconsolable oh, kind of face and said, the reason she's crying is because her tongue is wet and I won't let her keep drying it off with a towel. <laughs> and nobody would have guessed that story, I bet. So we tell stories about other people all the time, and we tell, anyway, and we tell stories about ourselves. What kind of person are you? What kind of person are we, my family that I came from? What kind of person are we, my people that I come from? Um, anyway, if you're interested in stories and storytelling, there's going to be an event called Storytelling Under the Stars here out in the courtyard, that way. And um, I tell myself the story that my sense of direction is messed up. I don't know if it makes me stupid, but it might. Uh, six o'clock, Sunday, May 5th. But today I want to talk about a different aspect of storying about each other, a different aspect um, being the stories other people tell about us and what power the stories other people tell about us have. Like, if you come from a family of more than one kid, some families do the um, defining their children thing. They'll go, oh, this is Sue, she's the pretty one, and this is Mary, she's the smart one, and then this is Bill, he's the troublemaker. And those stories that you were told as a kid about yourself really affect you into adulthood and shape you. Um, Virginia Satir, long ago family therapist, said there were roles that people fill in the family, and uh, one is the hero role. You're the hero kid, your parents go, oh, Jill never gave us a moment's trouble, and she always got straight A's. And so she's the hero kid. Sometimes it's the firstborn, but sometimes not. Uh, then there's the clown, the, the family clown, who's always cracking everybody up or uh, diffusing tension with a joke or some kind of falling down the stairs or sliding down the banister or something. 
And the scapegoat, like something gets broken, everybody goes, Bill! How did you break this? Or some fight starts and people go, Bill, what did you do to her? That's the scapegoat kid. And, and a scapegoat person, even into the rest of their life, they feel kind of braced for somebody to blame stuff on them. I don't know if you ever watched the comedy from Canada, the comedy show, Kids in the Hall. But it was one of our favorites. And one of them would get on the stage and, and he would go, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry about, about cancer. I know I did it. I know I did it somehow. And that's extreme, but that's kind of how the scapegoat kid feels for their whole life. So uh, I had clients once long ago and far away two sisters, and the parents always dress the one in red and one in blue. Always, 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 always. And um, my client was the one that had dressed in blue her whole life. And it took her until she was in her 30s to buy a red dress. In her 30s. And she felt wild. So what about stories that people tell about the broader identities that we have? So there are stories in the culture about various groups. You know, these folks are good at math. These folks have low verbal skills. These folks are bad at math. These folks can't drive. These folks, you know, you have stories about your identity group that um, go around. And studies since 1995 are showing that when we are, when those stories about our group are highlighted right before we do a task of some kind, we perform badly on the task. It makes us dumb. Okay, so they do experiments like this. They'll have, um, they always experiment on college students. That's how we do it in the psychology department. And um, so you'll have a group of um, male and female students, and you'll be told at the beginning of the experiment, where you have a lot of math tasks to do and verbal tasks to do, you'll be told at the beginning, oh, um, this is an experiment we're going to show that women are actually not worse at math than men. Okay? So you've highlighted that story that's told about that group. And the control group that's not told that, the women do a lot better on the math than in the control group that is told that. Or you'll have uh, male and female college students, college students and they'll say, um, we're going to give you a bunch of tasks to do, and this is to show that uh, boys really aren't worse at verbal things than girls. It makes the, the boys' brains start feeling threatened and, and makes them bad at verbal stuff. Uh, when they started, they started calling it stereotype threat. Now they call it identity threat. Same thing. Um, they've done studies with African-American students where they say before a test, for example, we're going to show the whole world that, that um, black students can do just as well on this test and not like they think about y'all, like you can't do well on tests. Those kids are not going to do well on the test 
even though you mentioned it in a positive kind of way, you woke up that identity threat. And who knows how much of students' performance in class is woken up by identity threat, even if you just are worrying about it. Like, you're a woman and you're the first woman they've ever had in this engineering firm, for example, which probably could have happened 10, 20 years ago. Um, or you're the first woman in a big tech firm. You, you sit in your cubicle and you think, if I make a mistake, they're going to say women can't do this. You're, you're carrying your whole identity group on your shoulders. If I laugh too loud, they're going to say, wow, women laugh loud. Or she's, she's dressed too girly. Or she's trying to dress like a man and not like a girl. Just everything starts jangling in your head. And it makes you shut down a little bit and perform less well. Say you're the first, um, you're a gay man and you're the first gay minister a church has ever had. And you're thinking, okay, okay, they said they were okay with gay people. Maybe some people are more okay than others. Uh, if I wear this tie, is that, is that too gay? Is this tie too gay? Do I sound gay? Um, if I push us to do a welcoming congregation class, uh, are they going to say it's because I'm gay? So the UUA found out that churches with gay ministers did the welcoming congregation curriculum a lot more slowly than churches with straight ministers. Just because the gay ministers were afraid that people would go, oh, you're just doing this, you're pushing this because you're gay. Churches with black ministers doing uh, an offering featuring Black Lives of UU might have an identity threat because of that. They might think, oh, they're going to think, they're going to say about me like they said about Obama, you know, I only care about the black people in the congregation. And I have to prove that that's not true. And it jangles your brain. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about? And something kind of starting up in progressive circles is maybe um, uh, white men feeling like, oh my God, I can't say that. Am I sounding too much like a white man? Am I, are they going to say I'm mansplaining? I better just shut up. I'm a black woman. I can't, I can't be angry about this because then they'll just say, oh, she's an angry black woman. Yeah, I am. But um, I can't, I have, to, I have to press it down. And one of my black colleagues, a woman named Kristen Harper in Massachusetts, wrote this poem that I'd like to read for you. I asked her permission. She just wrote it recently. My beautiful black brown sister with your non-conforming grace and rhythm radiating soul. You with the big, deep brown eyes and piercingly fierce gaze. You with the long, short, curly, straight, locked crown. You in all your regal baldness. I know what lies beneath that controlled voice, that diminished expression. I can see behind the veil of servant or surrogate. I feel the anger, the sadness, the frustration, the slow death of shrinking, of trying to become small so others won't be intimidated won't be afraid. I know the depression of stuffing, pushing down the roar of righteousness, the roar that claims our humanity, our value, our right to name the truth. I see your goddessness, your divine love, 
the depth of your black-brown brilliance. I hope someday you will, too. See the years of survival not as a test, but as a testimony to a stubborn love born from generations of strong black-brown sisters, mothers who refused to give up, grandmothers who passed down more than recipes of arroz con pollo, tandoori, or fried chicken, sisters, many sisters and aunts who held one another up, reached out a hand, shook us when we needed to wake up. My beautiful black-brown sister with your doubt, your brokenness, and your dusty knees, you are loved. So when we know that when we feel an identity threat, and many of us have multiple identities, when we feel the threat and it starts to jangle our brain, how do you counter that because when I say jangle your brain, uh, what I'm talking about neurologically is that the, the short-term memory places in your brain where you use, you know, where you're doing tasks where people give you strings of numbers and they say, name the last three numbers, name the last three numbers of that last one. What were the last three numbers of that last one? Where you have to, you have to update th what's in there and you have to um, have it available right there. I'm not talking about the file clerks that are down in the dusty archives where, you know, somebody says, oh, what was the last name of those children in the Narnia books? What was, you know, and then the file clerks have to put down their gin and, <laughs> what? They, what did, and look through and, you know, pull, oh, here it is. Anyway, who knows? And they drink more as you get older, apparently. But I'm talking about short-term memory. It shuts it down. So um, learning is more difficult when you're feeling a threat, when your brain is jangled. Risks are less easily taken when you're feeling under identity threat. We're going, is that too girly? Is that too gay? Is that too black? Is that too brown? Am I, am I fulfilling all the stereotypes of my Asian people? Am I, how, how am I... I can't do this, I can't laugh at that, I, I can't be too loud, I can't be too soft. I have to, I have to code switch and, try, and look around and try to be like uh, the people that are all around me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do that. And if, you, and if you never have to code switch, you know what I'm talking about, code switching? Um, how you're different when you're in a group of your own folks than when you're in a group that's uh, mostly the dominant culture. If you never have to code switch in your life, that is good information for you. <laughs> um, sometimes I code switch right in the middle, I mean right in front of y'all, you know, I'll say, well, ain't nothing wrong with that now. And some people look worried. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, hey, I graduated uh, magna cum laude from Duke University, so it's all right. I got me some good grammar yeah, when I want it. But a lot of people under identity threat will code switch constantly. Um, the book, The Hate You Give, is somewhat about that. Um, a young black woman going from the neighborhood to a private school um, and how she switches back and forth as she goes. Anyway, um, what works to counter 
that jangling of your short-term memory, your learning functions, all your executive functions in your brain, one of the things that counters it is what they call derogation, when you say derogatory things about the people who are thinking that about you. Apparently that works. I can't give that many examples. I stumbled around in the first service because I, I just try not to say derogatory things when I'm here in the pulpit. Uh, it's just when I'm watching TV that I'm good at it. <laughs> but you'll say, oh, those stupid, gutless, uh, moral uh, morons, they can't, uh, Flannery O'Connor said, those wingless chickens. <laughs> You say derogatory things about the people, and it makes you stronger. I, I hate to say that, but that's one of the ways. Another way is constructive response, where you just um, put your head down and do your best work. And you go, I know, people are going to think what they're going to think. Um, in the 12-step program, they go, what you think of me is none of my business, which I love. Um, although apparently, what you think of me really affects my brain, so I have to be conscious about doing this. So constructive response or ignoring it works for some people. One of the things that works best is by reminding yourself of your strength and power and the strength and the power of your identity group. So um, when you're worried about the stereotypes, you, you can heal that in yourself and you can Keep yourself from scrambling somebody else's brain by understanding the strength and power of their identities as well. Here's what I'm talking about. So if you see the movie Hidden Figures, and if you remind yourself of Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson, and if you remind yourself of Dr. Johnson, the the NASA scientist who invented, the black NASA scientist who invented the super soaker, then um, it might enrich your view of identity groups like uh, black women in math or uh, NASA scientists not ever doing anything fun. He invented the super soaker, y'all. That completely makes our family reunions. We should have a shrine to Dr. Johnson at our family reunions. And John Leguizamo has a, a documentary about Latinx history, and it's so good. And he talks about uh, learning about heroes and warriors and authors and journalists, and he's trying to teach his son um, his own history. Because when you can gather the power of your identities, then that combats that kind of gray fog of what other people think about gay people or what other people think about women or what other people think about fat people or what other people think about um, whatever identity you're in. The stories have a tremendous effect. And you can counter those vague stories of the culture by knowing, like smooth, beautiful stones in your hand, the stories of uh, the gay heroes, the stories of the black heroes, the stories of the female heroes. And I say hero, I'm using that word very broadly, not in a military sense, but just in a sense of 
people who have done stuff. And our culture erases the stories of those people. Erases. From time immemorial, we are now digging for stories of Greek women who were mathematicians and astronomers because one of the Greek historians said, uh, a woman's life is best lived when, uh, after she dies, it is as if she never lived. And so, and so, let's all go, yeah, he's dead, we can't hurt his feelings. Um, And so he would actively erase, literally erase, stories of accomplished women. The news has been full of the story of the photograph of the black hole. Have you seen that? So Katie Bauman is the scientist who did the algorithm in 2016 that has led to the um, photograph being taken And people started noticing, because internet, people started noticing right away that the stories didn't really mention her. And it was like, hey, there was a a woman, scientist, who did this. Let's mention her name. Let's say her name, Katie Bauman. And even though the right-wing corner of the internet uh, started this rumor, we've traced the code back, and it was really the white guy who sits next to her who did all the code. Well, the white guy happened to be gay, um, which if they had known, they wouldn't have uh, given him the credit. Just thinking. He was an ally, and so he shut that down right away. He was like, nope, it wasn't me. It was her. It's interesting to pay attention to different headlines, different ways of diminishing people. Um, and how that happens to um, some identity groups. So what I'm saying is to prevent your brain from being scrambled and to prevent exhaustion and burnout, which is what happens when you're under identity threat a good bit of the time, worrying about whatever you say, in order to prevent that, you try to tell Tell yourself powerful stories, more powerful than the stories that are creeping towards you from the culture. And know the stories of other people so you won't be part of the miasma of uh, too general and untrue stories creeping toward people from the culture. Gather your strength and give the stories to others and help them gather their strength as well. And then go shining. And now will you say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. 
Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.